Sandra told me to say no, but. <laughs> Don't listen to Sandra. <laughs> well, no, listen to Sandra, but also yeah. make it. But be discerning. Okay, <laughs> so um, we're going to get started, and I'd love to pray for Pastor Gordy here. So, Abba Father, just thank you for your heart for us this morning. Uh, just what already has been shown to us, your compassion, your tenderness, uh, just for your desire to draw us in. And so I ask uh, for Pastor Gordy this morning that he would be able to uh, continue on that, that heart, that desire of yours for us to hear your word, to know you. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, help us and help Pastor Gordy just convey the words of love to us this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Well, good morning again. Um, just, uh, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Robin. Robin is a YWAMer who's, who, who was with us for six months a couple of years ago. And he's back for three, three weeks. And this Thursday, this past Thursday, he did, an, for three hours, he did an incredible weeding job of our chapel garden. If you take a look at it, it looks amazing. So Robin, thank you so much for that. Amazing. So uh, awesome. And uh, uh, today I want to begin by, first of all, talking about Easter time when I was a kid. Um, especially in my teenage years, I lived in northern Alberta and I had two TV channels with the rabbit ears, remember those days? And I think we had CBC and CTV. I think that's all we still have. We, have a, we, <laughs> we still have the rabbit ears too, amazing. Um, so, um, but, but an Easter was a bit of a highlight for me because we'd go visit my uncle in Calgary and he had cable, a, thing, a new thing called cable TV. And I was really excited about that because I was able to watch NBA basketball, which CBC never carried. It was only hockey, of course. And uh, every Easter, they showed the movie The Ten Commandments. And I, it was a real highlight. Do you remember that? They used to show The Ten Commandments every Easter. And it, ha it was so amazing. You know, Charlton Heston as Moses, you know, stretching his hand over the Red Sea. And, and uh, then I was able to go down to Universal Studios in Hollywood and see how they did that. And, um, <clears throat> still there, isn't it? I think the display of that, that scene in The Ten Commandments is still... Uh, on display at Universal Studios. But it was ironic, ironically, um, I, I remember that, that the impact of that story, hearing it growing up as a kid, seeing it in the movie, but it never connected to me with mission. And ironically, as I became a teenager, I would go to Calgary during Easter time and go on a team called AIM. Does anybody remember AIM teams? Ambassadors in Mission. It was out of the Pentecostal. I think the assemblies still do do something similar. It's like a weak mission. And we would go knocking on doors and invite people to, to church and, and, and particularly try to find kids interested in Sunday school because they, they used to have a bus that would run around and pick people up in the Montgomery area of Calgary. 
And to me, that was mission. You know, uh, inviting people to church, introducing people to God. Um, but the story of Exodus, there, there, there was this, this disconnect that I had. And it's as, this series is, is about a connection that I believe will really help us in our understanding of mission. And it's influenced by some summer reading I did. The first, uh, how many had some good summer reading? Anybody besides me, some good beach reading, poolside reading? Yeah, yeah some of you have kids and maybe that was a bit limited. And, but um, uh, I, I love to read in the summer and I, I, I read a lot. And this was one of the books I read, which was actually a gift that I gave to Marcus for Christmas or his birthday or I can't remember what it was for. But he lent it back to me and I think I've wrecked it. <laughs> uh, so thanks for the gift, Marcus. <laughs> uh, but it's a very thick read by a guy named Christopher Wright, whom, the, you, whom Regent students affectionately call O.T. Wright. And they call him O.T. Wright because he's an Old Testament scholar. And there's a more famous N.T. Wright, which is his real initials, who's a New Testament scholar. So this guy, Christopher Wright, they just started calling O.T. Wright. And his thesis in this book is that, is not that there's a biblical basis for mission, but that God's mission is the basis for the Bible. Slight shift. So he calls it unlocking the Bible's grand narrative. It was because of God's, God's mission that God is on, the Bible was birthed. And so having a hermeneutic or interpretation of scripture through the lens of mission is his whole kind of approach to that. Well, that's a whole argument. And, but it was kind of reading through that book, and I'm almost done, uh, that, the, that his, as an Old Testament scholar, his, his take on Exodus just exploded in me. But there was another book that I was reading at the same time, and I was on a vineyard webinar somewhere in the summer, and an, uh, a, a, a Canadian from the east coast of African descent, he's an author and a writer and a speaker, can't remember his name, was speaking, and he was challenging us how many people we read who are, as, as Christian leaders, who are actually, uh, the authors are white males. And I thought, wow, I was trying to think back who, who I'd read recently who was not a white male. And... Uh, and I thought, oh, shoot, Christopher Wright, he's a white male, you know. And then all of a sudden I was delivered. And what I was delivered by was this book. This is also what I read this summer. The final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which is the story of 7,000 First Nations in Canada, 7,000 people, very skillfully put together by three First Nations authors, Dr. Murray Sinclair, who's a First Nations lawyer, judge, politician, is the chair. Dr. Marie Wilson is an award-winning journalist and a university lecturer. And Chief Wilton Littlechild is a lawyer, member of parliament, and a chief in Alberta. So I went, woohoo! The balance has been tipped. I've read some, some authors by who are minorities and, and eth ethnically different than white males. Um, 
But in all seriousness, these three authors did an incredibly skillful job in weaving together the 7,000 stories that were told about residential schools in Canada. The story, of course, of 7,000 survivors who were torn from their homes and families and forced to renounce their language and culture and where Christianity was force-fed on them. And so you can imagine the kind of tension I felt reading the mission of God. Even the very word mission has become a painful word. It, you know, it's got issues and it pushes buttons in our country. And then reading the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Summary, which, which has 94 calls to action for Canadians. And number 48, 49, 58, 59, 60, and 61 are directly addressed to us as the church in Canada. And so, so this also is going to feed into this teaching series. And I believe that there is a, there is, uh, the, the, the theme of Exodus, the mission of God, and the calls of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which include a recognition of our failure in mission as the church at times in Canada, all feed in together into this series. So let's begin, first of all, by, with these thoughts in mind. Let's look at our text, and I need eight readers. Can I have eight readers who come up to the mic? The reason why you have to come up to the mic is because... Uh, it's on podcast. So if you read in the crowd, um, uh, the, the people in podcast won't hear you. So if I can just have eight people, that would be great. Th doesn't all have to be white males, but it'd be good to have some. So we'll just start as you're coming. So... Um, Are you able to see that screen okay? If you can't, you can turn around and it's really big there. All right, Helen, you start. Just read kind of gentle pace and let's just follow the text together. And then when we, we get to the last slide, this is the whole first chapter of Exodus. We'll all read the last slide together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of the people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, 
for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Thank you, Anna. The Egyptian, the, um, the Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And all together. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. The word of the Lord. So we recently finished a story from Genesis, which I would say is not even chapter one of the story. Genesis is more the prologue or the preface of the story. And we learned that God is on a mission to redeem and reconcile the world and has taken the risk to do so in partnership with us, a costly risk, knowing that we will likely get it wrong again and again, he still risks doing this, not apart from us. And secondly, we have been chosen. The whole understanding of God's choice is missional. The whole earth, God says, is his. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And there's many scriptures that talk about the nations belong to God. The nations are his people. But he's chosen a particular nation to show himself to the other nations. So it's in that context that we come to this word redeemed. Because this tension between the mission of God that we learn about in Genesis and through Christopher Wright's marvelous unfolding of the mission of God as we understand as the church in tension with what happened with the residential school and the injustices that have occurred in our com 
country. I believe that Exodus steps into that gap. And one of the ways that Exodus does is it gives us an understanding of the word redeemed. I grew up with redeemed being a very common word. We used to sing about it a lot. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We would sing these songs and it became Christianese. Our eyes would glaze over and it lost its power and meaning. And it somehow we knew it was related to Jesus dying for us on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. Which is good and it's true. But if you ask a devout Israelite who lived in the times of the Old Testament if they were redeemed, they would respond with a resounding yes. They understood through the words of Yahweh himself that they were a redeemed people. But what was their understanding of redeemed? In Exodus 6, God said, I will redeem you, through, he said to Moses, with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. And in Exodus chapter 15, he said, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. The song of Moses. So on a human level, the word redeemer in their context, the Hebrew word that's used for redeemed, had three, uh, sig- there was significance in three areas. The first was, it was an avenger of justice, avenger of blood. Back in those days when they didn't have nation states with civil law, if someone was killed, then a family member became the avenger of blood for that person. If it was your mom or your dad or your brother or sister or someone was killed and there was no justice, then someone in the family would actually take it upon themselves to make sure that that person was brought to justice. Back in those days, even becoming the executor. And it was the Hebrew word redeemer. That was their redeemer. Secondly, by the way, the, the key word there is family. Family. So the second word also had to do with family. When a member of the family fell into debt back in those days, in order to pay off debt, what did they do? They had to sell their land, didn't they? They had to, to give up uh, inheritance property. They, or they sold themselves into debt. And a redeemer, a family member, could intervene and pay off that debt so the person was not sold into slavery or lost their land. Redeemer, family. Thirdly, and we are familiar about this, with this through the story of Ruth, where a widow, she's lost her husband and they're in danger of losing an heir for the family, then a kinsman redeemer would come in, marry that widow, and raise up children for her. So she was not left bereft. And so again, that word redeemer was used. So very powerful family relationship, powerful intervention, and effective restoration. The words redeemer had to do with all of those things. So when it talks about God being a redeemer for, ex, for, the, for, the, for the exodus, what was involved? Orthodox Jews regard the exodus story as the birth of their nation. The pain and the suffering that they went through was like birth pains. They see it like birth pains. And it shaped the story of their, their people. 
And so the, the idea of redemption, first of all, was purely political. It's the story of a people who were originally welcomed in Egypt, remember, through Joseph going ahead of them into Egypt. He was sold as a slave into Egypt. And that act of, of treachery by his brothers actually saved their lives. Because, and going ahead, he, be, he, he was exalted and promoted to the prime minister of Egypt. And then in a worldwide famine, that little Hebrew family found refuge in Egypt. But a generation dies off, and now this people group, who had originally been welcomed and given asylum, they become the target of an irrational fear and unjust discrimination. Does that sound familiar? A generation dies off. There's a regime change. A new pharaoh comes in who, Exodus says, doesn't know Joseph. And he has no regard for him. And I've said over and over again in our relations with First Nations people in Canada that ignorance of history produces hardness of heart. Ignorance of history produces hardness of heart. I was shocked to find out this week the number of people in Canada who now know about residential schools in Canada. Does anybody know the percentage that I haven't told already? Look, Rose? Well, good try. It's 50%. Half the people in Canada know before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 33% knew. So that level of ignorance in the country produces hardness of heart. It's the same kind of ignorance that you would feel if you see a guy lying on the roadside and he looks like a bum. He looks like he's, he's just you know, drunk and in the ghetto, and you don't know, like the Good Samaritan, that that man has been beat upon, that he's fallen upon circumstances in his life. You don't know his story. When you don't know the story, it produces hardness of heart. And that's what happened with Pharaoh. So this issue of memory is going to be very important as we go through this story. Memory. Good memory, memory of the good, memory of the bad, memory of God's promises and faithfulness, memory of injustices that are done. So the first aspect of redemption was political, is that God went to work to deliver Israel from an unjust regime and to set them free. Secondly, it was economic. The oppression that they suffered, they were taken as slave labor rather than their labor and land being used for their own profit and benefit to benefit their lives, their children. They were being ex exploited by the Egyptians for their agriculture and construction projects. They had no land, no rights, no title. They worked from dawn till dust, dusk. There were no evenings, weekends, no time off. No watching NFL football at night. No coffee breaks. No benefits. Just enough to kind of survive so they could do a good job the next day. They had no life. So rescuing Israel from their slave labor economically was also at the heart of the Exodus redemption. The third thing was the program escalates into a state-sponsored genocide as the Hebrew male babies are targeted for extinction. They suffer aggressive interference in their family lives and their basic human rights are violated. 
basic human rights. The families lived in constant fear for nine months when a woman became pregnant. In what should have been a time of joy and anticipation, they lived in fear and terror. And instead of joy, when a, when a boy is, is born, it's a boy! There's terror and there's grief. So there was social redemption. And finally, spiritual redemption. God challenged Mo, Pharaoh through Moses to let my people go so that they may worship and serve me. The word worship is the word abad, which means to worship or to serve. And there's a remarkable word play as it is similar to the word abodah, which means slavery. It's almost like God is saying to Moses, tell the people that they're being delivered not so much from servitude, but delivered from the master that they were serving. They're, they're exchanging one master for another. And believe me, that master was a whole lot better. So true freedom and liberation was not the right to independence, which we like to so exalt and idolatrize in our own culture to do our own thing, but true liberation was the freedom to serve God, to know him, that was redemption. The intention of the Exodus was that they know God, that they worship God, and they serve God. What was God's heart in all of this? What was God's motive in this? Well, first of all, it, God spoke to Moses and said he knows what's going on. He sees it. He said to Moses, I have seen at the burning bush, I've seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying and I, am, I have felt their pain. And I'm concerned or I'm intimately acquainted with, literally the Hebrew is, with their suffering. What does that do for you today? To know that whatever you've suffered this, this week or whatever suffering you're in right now, God sees it, he hears your cry, he feels your pain, and he's concerned about it. Enough to act on your behalf. I can't tell you how many times in lower post as I've stood before those First Nations people that have been so devastated by one of the most notorious residential schools in Canadian history and that, that I've preached this verse to them. God says, I've felt your pain. I've heard your cry. I've seen your tears and I've come down to help you. So God's awareness and compassion but also God's covenantal memory. God said to Moses, God, I've heard their groaning. It says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God remembered a covenant that he'd made, a promise that he'd made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would become a great nation. So it was God's memory that also motivated him and moved him. Not only his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
but his covenant with the whole earth. Because when God made a covenant with Abraham, it was a covenant with everybody that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want to bless all the nations. I want them all to know me, to come and to worship me. Pakistan is mine. India is mine. China is mine. All the nations of the world, of South America, they are mine. And I want, to know you. I want them to know me. And that's why God will act on his promise to Abraham. And finally, God acted because his actions in the Exodus were formative for shaping the character of this community. The Exodus story became a model for the character and the action of God. And it became the premise for how they were to be a people of God through the whole Old Testament with continuity into the New. Deuteronomy 10 says God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. That's the heart of the gospel message. That's the heart of the message of redemption through Exodus. Is remember you were slaves. You were foreigners. Let that impact how you treat foreigners, how you treat the marginalized, how you treat the oppressed. Deuteronomy 24 says, care for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Leave extra gleanings in the harvest when you, at harvest time so they can come and pick up food. Invite them to your feasts at Pentecost for you were once slaves. They were to be a community of compassion, but not only a community of compassion for others, but a community of compassion for themselves. God says, you're now free under my, uh, under my leadership as your master to be good to yourself. So keep the Sabbath. Take care of yourself. Set it apart. Don't go back into the slavery of Egypt. Remember he says, remember the Sabbath, for you were once slaves where you had no day off. You had no weekend. Stop and realize you're not a human doing. You're a human being. You're not a machine. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. Take that day and just be and let me delight in you. Let me enjoy you. You're mine. I delight in you. Self-care. Don't go back to Egypt. Did they listen? Oh, that's for another day. So there's two inadequate interpretations that often come out of Exodus. And the first is what we call a spiritualized interpretation. And the spiritualized interpretation of Exodus, as we move into the New Testament, it goes like this. In Exodus, and we've all preached this, I've preached this, God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. But in the New Testament, our exodus is the cross. And God delivered us from slavery to sin. So this is then regarded as our real exodus. The historical exodus story becomes diminished. It becomes redundant. It's almost like the rocket boosters on a rocket ship. Remember when the Challenger disaster happened and those rocket boosters were falling off? And when, when rockets go into space, they have these rocket boosters that propel them out of the atmosphere, and then they become redundant. And that's often our view of the Old Testament. But there's, the Old Testament is still part of our story. 
So the historical exodus is diminished, relegated, relegated to a type or a shadow with minimal meaning in itself, historically. This has implications on our message and mission. And as a result, our primary mission then is to evangelize, to see people saved from their sin so they can know God which is, and, and, and be delivered from their sinfulness, which is their deepest problem, which is true. The thing is, these things are true. The fact is, the New Testament would also agree with this. The New Testament preaches a, a type and a shadow. In fact, it even calls Christ's death on the cross an exodus in one place at the transfiguration. John the Baptist declared Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A clear reference to the Passover Lamb. So it's not wrong, but it's incomplete. It's not the full story. For the actual exodus, for example, the actual exodus story is not about being delivered from their sin. It was, first of all, about being delivered from the sins of somebody else that were being perpetrated on them. It was God's war against oppression and injustice. And it was a declaration of, of God siding with the marginalized and the oppressed. And the early church understood this through the cross, that even Christ's victory on the cross was a victory over the powers. Christus Victor, they used to call it. And you see Paul lining this out in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we'll, we'll take some time with that. But it also conveys a God who who's has, has a bit of a split personality. There's the God of the Old Testament who was concerned about social issues, political arrogance, abuse, economic exploitation, judicial corruption, the suffering of the poor and the oppressed, and the evils of brutality and bloodshed. And he was really passionate about those things through the prophets and all the, all the law. But all of a sudden in the New Testament, he's just concerned about our spiritual salvation. And there's this kind of esoteric idea of God. Most important thing is we get our sins forgiven that we know God and we go to heaven. So these are some of the issues that can come out of that. But there's also another inadequate interpretation that is, has often been interpreted, especially in places like South America. It's affected us somewhat here in the West. Is that the Exodus story is an inspiration for political action when there's political oppression. So it gave rise to the liberation theologies of South America. The, the African-American story in the U.S., they very much found their inspiration and still continue to from the Exodus story. First Nations in Canada. I find that when I preach on the Exodus in uh, Lower Post, it just explodes. The place just comes alive. They so identify. So again, it's not that this is wrong, but it's inadequate. It, it doesn't bring out the fact that you can have a regime change, but if your hearts aren't changed, you're going to end up in the same mess. And that's what happened to Israel. When they came out of Egypt, remember that thing that happened in the wilderness where God was trying to now get them to know him? And, and they, they kind of grumbled and complained, and finally a whole generation ended up dying in the wilderness. And then when they went into the promised land, because they didn't understand the spiritual side of redemption... 
They went back into idolatry. They went back into injustice. And they ended up back in exile again. So a better way to look at it is an integrating interpretation where Exodus demonstrates that our message and mission is holistic, engaging the world on all levels, politically, economically, socially, and spiritually. The gospel speaks to those things. And what happens is if you have social engagement without evangelism, you go back to the wilderness. And if you have evangelism without social engagement, then you have a lot of problems, spiritual evangelism without social engagement. You have a lot of the problems that the children of Israel experienced in the Old Testament. You remember where Amos noticed that the people of God had lots of good singing? They had good worship bands. They had lots of good atonement theology. They had plenty of blood sacrifices. And God said, they're making me sick. They had plenty of religious observances. They had charismatic conventions and festivals. But beneath their noses, they trampled the poor and the uncared for. Religion flourished amid social rottenness, and God hated it. He longed for someone to shut the whole thing down, which prompted Amos the prophet to say, away with your songs. Let justice Roll like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. And so, this is the reason why, in two weeks, instead of coming here to sing and read our Bible stories, we will meet and walk the reconciliation walk. Because we believe that the gospel and redemption and worship is just as much about justice and reconciliation and healing in all levels of society as our worship on Sunday is. It's just as much a part of worship. So this, uh, what came to mind to me, just to close it with an illustration of this, and I showed you this when we came back from Korea two weeks ago. This is a martyr shrine in Seoul, Korea. This martyr shrine is called Juldason in Korean. Juldason? Yeah? Beheading Mountain? Yeah. And this is where some of the first martyrs in Korea, uh, Christian martyrs, were beheaded. And it was over a, there's a cliff right behind this statue. I believe this statue is one of the martyrs, early martyrs in Korea. Uh, when the gospel was first arriving. And what w- they called it Beheading Mountain because it, this is actually a cliff where, where they were beheaded and then the carcasses were thrown over uh, the cliff. And so this shrine is there today in, in Seoul to remember these martyrs. But here's the thing that gets me related to our message today about why they were martyred. The, the, the primary martyrs were called the, they were, they were a class called the Yangban. You heard of the Yangban? The Yangban in the Confucian caste system were the highest caste. India is not the only country that has caste systems. Other, other countries have them like India, or uh, Korea, England, and Canada. 
and um, it's just a little more subtle, right? But the Yangban were the elite. They were the only ones that were entitled to education. They were the upper class, and they were not allowed to associate with the poor, with the peasants. When they became Christians, they learned in the gospel that Jesus invites them to the same communion table, and they are one, they are brothers and sisters. There's no male or female, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, but we are one in Christ Jesus. And those Yangban realized that they were called by the gospel to eat with their sisters and brothers of all castes and classes. And that so threatened and disrupted the social system of Korea that these Yangban, these upper class, for their faith were martyred and beheaded. And I believe that the seeds of their martyrdom is actually prepared the way for what Korea is today, a modern-day democracy. But think about it for a moment. Wouldn't it have been easy for them to say, you know what, we'll, we'll just back off on that point. It, you know, we're, we're saved. We prayed the sinner's prayer. We're going to heaven. So we'll, we'll just stay eating with ourselves and let those people eat over there because after all, we'll all be able to eat together in heaven. They wouldn't accept that. Now, just one little, little more detail I want to show you here. And some of you remember this. I showed you this. If you look very carefully here, this is from, the, from Jules de Sand. Do you see this here? What do you see? Can you see that? Let me make it a bit bigger. You see that? What is that? Cross. It's a cross. You know what the cross is? It's on the largest Christian church in the world. Full Gospel Central Church on Yoido Island in Seoul, Korea. Over a million members. Truly the blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. It's amazing. So God cares, folks. God cares about these things. He cares about social justice. He cares about the fentanyl crisis. The fact that I'm hearing sirens go all hours of the night by my house. God cares about the fact that this is one of the biggest epidemics that our, our province has ever known. God cares about the fact that orphaned children who are disabled in China are being abandoned. God cares about the fact that international China concern is intervening. That's God's heart. God cares about the fact that, that children and women are being trafficked in Cambodia and Roland and... and uh, uh, Jan and team are going to be writing for Ratnak in a, in, a, in a few weeks for them. God cares about that. God cares about the systemic racism in our country where there's such a disparity in the level of drinking water between the mainstream population of Canada and many First Nations community in our country. God cares about the disparity in education and in health. He cares about those things. It's not either or. Your gospel, O Lord, is the hope of our nation. And Exodus informs us in the power of that gospel. So there's some things on your bulletin. Uh, I won't read them out here, but you can take those home and reflect on them. Um, I think just the, the one thing at the bottom, just say, what is one or more way that a more integrated and holistic understanding of our message and mission would impact your life this week? Maybe God is speaking to you about the fentanyl crisis. Maybe God is speaking to you about the, the epidemic of, of addiction in our country. Maybe God is 
is speaking to you about a Pharaoh that you're in bondage to. Because the reason why God wanted to deliver them from Pharaoh was because it kept them from serving him. And our addictions keep us from God. Whether it's drugs, whether it's porn, whether it's workaholism, religiosity and drivenness, performance orientation, all those addictions keep us from serving the living God. And the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, oh, okay. Is that what happened? No, friends, there's a fight for this. There's a fight. And that's the journey. That's the mission. That's the story that we're in. That's the struggle that we're in. So, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you as we did at the beginning of the service and we know that you are continuing to work through this whole service with all its little twists and turns. I just pray that you would ignite a fresh fire in us. Would we just become so overwhelmed and grateful again for the power of this message and mission that you've given us. That we burn with your fires. Romans says, never be sluggish in the work of the Lord, but full of zeal, full of passion. Not our own human uh, fire, but your fire, your love, Lord. May we May we catch a glimpse of your heart for redemption. Your heart to redeem this world. Jesus. So just come Holy Spirit. Just pray that you refresh us and renew us. Set us free from our addictions, from our bondages. Redeem, Lord. You have redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. Just come, Lord. Gordy uh, <clears throat> mentioned that we were in, it was like uh, two weeks ago we were in Korea. I think it's more like how many years now? Two years. Two years. But the Holy Spirit just, uh, I shared a little humorous moment with Joanna there, but the Holy Spirit's quickening to me right now how easy it is for us to forget what God has spoken to us about, and that we easily just let those promises settle, and then we just settle ourselves into just routine monotony or routine mediocrity. Just last Sunday, I had an encounter, which I think is a total Holy Spirit encounter with a priest named Father Gino from St. Francis Church, and uh, I... Received communion from him a few weeks ago when I attended the St. Francis Church with my sister, who is a devout Catholic. It's a long story, but the Lord gave me a promise 40 years, almost 40 years ago uh, when I married my husband that God was going to, because at that time I was not, uh, I was very involved with the Catholic Charismatic Movement and was involved with L'Arche, with uh, mentally handicapped people involved in their community. Uh, had been really revitalized in my faith by my encounter with Jean Vanier and retreats. And I had no intention of leaving the Catholic Church, but I fell in love with Gordy. 
And we got sanctioned by the bishop in northern Alberta, and we had an ecumenical marriage ceremony with Gordy's father, who was a Pentecostal pastor. Uh, the priest afterwards kind of re- seemed to regret the fact that I was attending that <laughs> Pentecostal church more than his church. But, of course, you know, I was bringing the First Nations kids in my truck, and uh, it seemed like the Pentecostal people were more open to having them than the Catholics at that time. So I'm just saying that that was a promise I had 40 years ago, and I've held on to that, that God was going to open the door for us to do a work with with Catholic people. That happened for a year after our marriage when we were doing youth work in Calgary. God gave us a relationship with a charismatic priest, and we ended up doing curseals with high school kids, weekend retreats. Gordy would preach, and I would just run around praying for everybody, (laughs) particularly the girls. And it was incredible. I thought, this is God. And then the guy died. And it's been 39 years. I've just had a few encounters on a regular basis with Korean Catholics, because I do ESL work. But nothing along the line that the Lord promised. And I believe God is now redeeming that promise. Because I met this priest, and I talked to him. I just, like, opened up my heart to him. I said, I've been to different Catholic churches and they don't feel that I can wear two hats. I can't be a Pentecostal or can't be a vineyard pastor's wife. And and they think I have to bow down to the Pope. And I said, well, you know, I never did bow down to the Pope, even when I was in the Catholic charismatic movement. Uh, I don't intend to bow down to the Pope either. And there's a lot of Catholics that don't want to bow down to the Pope. I'm not saying I don't respect the Pope. I'm just, so anyway, we won't get into that. But I'm going to say The Holy Spirit wants to remind us, again, it's so easy to drag our butts into church and we're so tired and we're always thinking about that we're tired. But one touch from the Lord, one touch from the Lord, he can remind us about promises that he's going to come and bring to pass. I'm convinced Father Gino says, come and see me. I'm not like that other guy over there. (laughs) So I fully intend to walk into what God has for me, 40 years of promise, and I believe God is on the move. But I want to exhort you today, don't settle into mediocrity and believe that God can give you the strength. Because we get overwhelmed, we get tired. And like Marcus said, these guys just showed up the other day and all of a sudden we've got a new little slide in the preschool. And it was Marcus and Kenny working together. God can give us the strength. But we need to believe. And that's, I just want to say that. I just really want to exhort us that sometimes we think it's two weeks, like you said, but really it wasn't. It was it two like years. Two Did I say two weeks? Yeah, you said two weeks. And I just thought, it felt like yeah, it. so it's easy. Really Next sabbatical is only five years. And that was so powerful when we went there, and it just changed my life when we, when we went to Korea. And we saw that, and it's affected us today, every day when we have international homestay students with us. But, Father, I just want to release the promises that you have come individually and to people's families and to people's relatives and to our church family about what your intention is. And we want to repent of putting limits on you. And we want to open our hearts up to the great ecumenical work that you intend to do in this city between churches between Protestant churches, between Catholic churches. And we call people out. We call the Moseses out. We call the the guys that are supposed to stand with Moses because he thinks he stutters. 
And we call um, those kind of guys to come together, Lord. And we just bow down before you. And we ask that you invigorate us today. Invigorate us. Give us strength when we feel we can't do it. We feel overwhelmed. We feel tired. And take authority over sickness in this congregation. I take authority over weakness, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we release your healing touch on all of our lives, on our families' lives, to live under the covenant of the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name. So, Lord, just come right now by your Spirit and remind people of some of the promises you have given them. Maybe five years ago, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, for me, 40 years ago, about what your purposes are for each one of our lives. And may we walk in that. We just all stand and I'd like to bless you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, who chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and without blame before him in love, predestined you to be adopted as his very own children by Jesus Christ unto himself, so that God would be praised the one through whom you've been accepted in the beloved, through whom you have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So I bless you this week to walk in the power of that redemption, to live in the benefits of that. You are free in the name of Jesus. You are free spirit, soul, body, to serve the living God, to know him, to walk with him, and to make him known. So in that walk, may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. If you need prayer, don't hesitate to come for prayer or just turn to one another. There's more coffee at the back. God bless you. Look forward to going through Exodus with you. We'll see you next Sunday.